Psalm number 70. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, to bring remembrance. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame, who say, Aha! Aha! Let those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, Let the Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Okay, our sermon text for today is going to be Genesis chapter 46, 28 through 34. This is going to complete chapter 46 of uh, Genesis, and this is called A Glorious Reunion. So Genesis 46, starting in the 28th verse says, Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. I think everybody here knows this. If uh, you haven't been following uh, or if you've missed some of the YouTube videos, I want to explain that this particular sermon fits into the life cycle of Joseph, which has been a broad panorama of the history, mostly of the Jewish people. Since uh, they were exiled out of the land, they had rejected Jesus and there was a, a very short interim uh, chapter, chapter 38, which spoke of the church age, which is ongoing during this uh, time of exile. But everything has been leading in this panorama of Joseph's life to the time when Israel would again call on Jesus Christ and be reconciled to him. Okay, And this is a part of that today. This is actually the reunion between Jacob and uh, Joseph, and it's picturing these things continuing on in the tribulation period, the final seven years of Daniel's uh, 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9, okay? And so that's what's going on. So if you haven't been following this, you may be a little bit lost today. If you've been following it, you should fit in like a shoe. But I just wanted to give you that little panorama before we got started here. There is a famine in the world during Jacob's time, and it's going to continue on for about five more years, a little less by this point. In order to protect and feed Israel, Joseph has called them down to Egypt. And Jesus speaks of the time of the Great Tribulation. That's the last three and a half years of the Tribulation period, which is coming on the world as well. He warned them that the time would come when they would have to pick up and they would have to leave on a moment's notice, which is exactly what we saw Joseph telling his family to do to come down to Egypt. But those people that do flee from Israel are going to be kept, they're going to be nourished, and they're going to be carried through the terrible time, and they will come out of it in the end. Joseph is taking steps to ensure his family will be cared for during the continued famine, and he will keep them also from the corruption of the Egyptians in the process by sending them to an area which is separate from them. Sometimes we in the church get in our own times of personal tribulation, and we might feel like the world is falling apart around us. It happens to me from time to time. You think, why is everything happening all at once? And it may be so bad that we wonder if there is any safety or any sure foothold left at all. I have to assure you that there is. As followers of Christ, we have to remind ourselves during those times of trouble that he is there and that he will carry us through these things. It might not always be the way that we expect, but it is always the way that is absolutely the best. God's word tells us that and we have to trust it. That's very hard to see from the low spots in life, but it is what we must trust is true. In a great song of salvation, Isaiah chapter 26 gives hope to the people. Even in death, the Lord promises victory. At one point in the chapter, he gives advice to his people who are facing a world of trouble and horror. He tells them to simply go into hiding while he handles what needs to be done. 
And this is something that we can do as well. When we're overwhelmed with the events of life, we can hide away and we can let him handle all of the problems that swirl around us in our life. There, separate from the outside world, we can commune with him, we can read his word, and we can wait on his curing treatment for our own woes. Our text verse today does come from Isaiah chapter 26. It's the 20th verse. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. The famine in the world at Joseph's time was immense, but God gave him wisdom to prepare for it. And with his family now in the area, they've come down to Egypt. He will ensure that they are kept in an area which is isolated from everything else that's going to happen. God gave them a savior from within Israel, and he prepared a safe haven for Israel. And he's done the same thing for us too. He has given us a savior from within humanity and a safe haven in Christ Jesus. He can empathize with us. He can understand our cares and our troubles. And he has given us a place of refuge during our times of trial. And above all, he has given us food enough to make it through any famine. That food is found in his word. It is what instructs us. It is what comforts us. It is what nourishes us. Of all of the things that we could read to have a better life and a fuller relationship with him, his superior word is the very best. Too often we read book after book after book about the Bible, and we fail to devote that same amount of time to actually reading the Bible. So here's my question to you. How many books have you read in the past year? How many times have you read the Bible, and does it compare to all of the other books that you've read? Because if not, you're making an error in your life. Let's not make that error, but let's get into his word every single day of our life. And let's get into his word now too. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. We have uh, three thoughts for you today. The first one is the son appears to Jacob. This is verses 28 and 29. Verse 28 says, Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. The family has departed Canaan. They left Beersheba after Jacob made sacrifices to the Lord. We saw that two weeks ago, and then we saw that kind of complicated sermon last week with all of the numbers and digits, and it was, you know, something that was a little hard to grasp, but it was very important in understanding what God was doing. On the journey, though, Judah is now selected to point out the way to to get them to Goshen. There are probably a few reasons why Jacob would have done this. The first is that they have a very large company coming into the land. We saw in that uh, sermon last week that there were 70 people mentioned in the chapter, but there were other family members not mentioned, and there were certainly a huge number of servants as well. If I recall, it was 318 trained servants of Abraham, men of war that went off to battle the four kings, you know, back in, it was like chapter 17 or something of Genesis. It was quite a long time ago. But he had these 318 men, which implied that there was a camp of probably several thousand people that didn't go on this this, uh, war. And then from there, Isaac inherited everything that uh, Abraham had, and he caused it to grow. And then from there, Jacob separated from him and went up to Mesopotamia. He got four wives, he got his children, and he got all kinds of servants and flocks, this great horde that came back down into Canaan, and then he inherited what Isaac had. So we have a very, very large force of people that is probably coming into the land at this time, all right? And because of that, the Egyptians may have thought, despite them having the royal carts, that they were actually an attacking force coming down to get the the food that they needed. Secondly, if Judah arrived to tell Joseph that they were coming, then he could uh, send someone to pinpoint exactly where in Goshen they were to settle and save all of that extra travel that might be unnecessary for the older folks and the women and the children. And Judah was selected uh, because his three older brothers, if you remember from those previous sermons, all fell from favor over things that they had done in the past. Reuben, the oldest son, slept with his wife's um, concubine, Bilhah, and then, of course, Simeon and Levi killed an entire town of people. And because of that, they had lost his favor. So for all intents and purposes, Judah is the trusted leader of all of the brothers. Also, he is the one who spoke for the entire group when appealing to Joseph before they knew who he was. It was his speech which finally convinced Joseph to reveal himself. 
And because of this, he would be the most obvious choice to meet with Joseph again. But what is a little bit more than ironic about this is that it was Judah who had suggested selling Joseph off as a slave more than 20 years earlier. And now Joseph is the one who is dealing with him to find them a home to settle in. Matthew Henry calls this rendering good for evil. Two interesting pictures come out of this then. The first is that Judah represents all of the Jews. The term Jew comes directly from the name Judah. Secondly, as has happened several times in the Bible, Judah is sent first. We're going to see this again and again throughout the Bible. As Judah means praise, it is giving us a picture of our responsibilities before the Lord. Let praise go first before the Lord. Judah is going to be the first tribe every time that the tabernacle breaks down and travels in the wilderness over those 38 years of wilderness wanderings. They are going to be the head of the tribes as they head out. Also, Judah, several times in the Old Testament, is selected to be the first tribe to engage in battle. Okay, In all things, we're given this picture. Let the praise of the Lord go first. It is an eternal picture for us to see and to act upon in our prayers, in our lives, and in our hopes. Let praise of the Lord go first. Now, what do I mean by prayers? When you go in to pray to the Lord, most people, I wouldn't say most people, but I think many people probably go and ask God, I need this, I need that. Please help this sick person, or I need money to pay my bills or whatever. And that's not the appropriate way to uh, you know, enter the presence of the Lord. The tabernacle structure is laid out in a certain way to show us how we approach the Lord. The first is to come through his gates, as it says in the Psalms, with thanksgiving, to praise him and to thank him. And then the first thing you see when you walked into the tabernacle was the altar of sacrifice. We have to confess our sins once again during the day. You know, I've done these things, Lord, I've offended you. And then go and ask for all the things that you want. But let praise of the Lord go first in our lives. We should be walking down the road and, you know, you see a beautiful flower. Lord, that's so wonderful. Let me praise you for that. Thank you, Lord, for what you did for me yesterday. You know, you just made the day perfect. Let praise of the Lord go first in your lives and even in your hopes. Lord, my hope, and this isn't a hope of uncertainty. It is my great hope. I am going to be in your presence someday, and I want to praise you for that. In all things, let the praise of the Lord go first. And that's what we can derive just from this little picture that is going to be repeated again and again throughout the Bible. Next, we see the name Goshen. The name Goshen means drawing near or approaching. As I said in a previous sermon, I am absolutely certain that this is asking us to consider the name. Every time you see a name or a, of a place or a person, it is there for a reason. Two things are drawing near in the future, which are being pictured right here. The first is that the Jews are to flee from the land of Israel because of the great tribulation. That's from Jesus' own mouth. The second half of the tribulation is called the great tribulation. Okay. The second thing that is drawing near is the literal return of Jesus Christ to rule the earth for 1,000 years. The name Goshen is being used to show that the end times are truly drawing near. Goshen is also called later the land of Ramses. So why did God do that? Unless he is giving us a picture right here by using the name Goshen. All right. This name is certainly given specifically for us to see the approach of the great tribulation, which is ahead. Verse 28 continues, and they came to the land of Goshen. This is where Israel will be kept safe during the time of famine and separate from all of the people of Israel, or I'm sorry, Egypt, while they're down there. And they're going to remain here for the next 215 years. Remember, it was 215 years from the promise of Abraham until them arriving in Egypt. Now they're going to be another 215 years in Egypt. But the story is going to skip over almost all of that time. It will go from this early period of their time in Goshen at the end of Genesis right into almost their time of departure there at the, in the book of Exodus. The time frames are different. 215 years, 215 years, as opposed to three and a half years and three and a half years but the pictures are the same. Israel is going to be kept safe until they're taken back into their homeland. The Bible tells us specifically, and it also demonstrates time and time again, that which has been will be again. That which has been done will be done again. And there is nothing new under the sun. 
God is giving us these patterns so that we can accurately perceive the world around us and to have faith that God is in control of what is happening. He is always in control. That's why he gives us these patterns again and again is to show us, I was in charge when this happened at this time and then it happened again here at this particular time and it's recorded in my word. And it says that this is going to happen in the future. And because of that, because I took care of it then and I took care of it then, be assured that I will take care of it in the future as well. When God says that he will resurrect you to eternal life, it will really, really happen because he's already proven it in the resurrection of his son. This is how God works. He gives us these things to give us a sure foundation in our hope. It is not a blind hope. It is a hope that is grounded in the reality of God's precious word. They came to Goshen where they would be safely kept during the famine in the time of tribulation. And for more than 200 years, there they slept until the Lord led them out of Egypt by a great salvation. Verse 29, so Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. In the first 27 verses of this chapter, the name Jacob was used 15 times and the name Israel was used only four and two of those were applied not to him as his name. Suddenly in the last seven verses, the name Jacob isn't used at all and the name Israel is used twice. It is the man in the story, but the collective group of people in the picture. It is to his father Israel that Joseph makes his chariot ready as he goes up to Goshen. It is to his redeemed people, Israel, who Jesus will protect and defend during the tribulation period. In another ironic occurrence, it is Israel who was invited to come to Egypt by Pharaoh and who is being met and lovingly greeted in the chariot of the governor of the land who is under his authority. But yet, when Israel departs Egypt, it will be as they are first expelled and then chased by Pharaoh and his chariots during the Exodus. There is a famine in the land which made Pharaoh bring him here. And there is uh, going to be destruction in the land which will make Pharaoh drive them out. There is Goshen mentioned here which means to draw near. And there is Moses at the Exodus which means to draw out. And it is Joseph who is coming to greet them as they arrive. And it is Joseph whom they will carry out as they depart. This is shown in Exodus 13, verse 9. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. These continued parallels between the two events, and we've seen probably 20 already. We've seen another four or five right here. They're certainly noteworthy, and it shows immense care in the details. Once again, same thought. God is giving us this, this detail in his word, showing that I am completely in control of everything. And I'm giving you patterns that actually happened in human history to show you that the patterns that are predicted will come about. It's the wisest, most wonderful way that God is giving us this comfort if we simply read the Bible and if we simply apply it to ourselves. Verse 29 continues, And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. <clears throat> Joseph came to his father and in the most tender moment of either of their lives, they are reunited face to face in tears of joy. In fact, it says that he fell on his neck and wept a good long while. But interestingly enough, the Hebrew is not specific enough to let us know who did the weeping on which neck. The, the Greek Old Testament, the Latin Vulgate, and John Calvin, among many other scholars, believe that it was Joseph who did the weeping. But the Jewish scholar Maimonides says that the verb refers to Jacob. Well, I'd have to agree with Maimonides. Jacob has for many years been the grieving father. This is the greatest moment in his entire life and one he thought would never come about. And it is reflective of the parallel or the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. In that famous story, we read these words. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. However, having said this, I think that the reason that the Hebrew is left uncertain is because it shows exactly the opposite in what's being pictured. Jacob is picturing wayward Israel. 2,000 years they've been in exile. They've rejected their Messiah. Joseph is picturing Jesus. What is pictured is the mourning of the people at the knowledge of who Jesus is. And this is seen explicitly said 
in Zechariah chapter 12. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And as an internal clue to this very thing, we see something unusual in this verse. And I hope that you will get this. It's a little complicated because I use the Hebrew, but this is so interesting. The words, and he presented himself, is the Hebrew phrase, veyira. It is used 20 times in the Bible in this exact construct, which is called the nifal form of the verb. There are seven uh, verb stems in Hebrew. This is a particular one. 20 times it's used in this construct. Every instance except one in the book of Ezekiel is referring to the appearance of God to someone. The one in Ezekiel is speaking of Jerusalem in a metaphorical way, so it can't be used in the same line of thought. Because of this unusual term, ve'yira, it is certainly asking us to look at this in the context of the greater picture that's being presented. Joseph is said to have appeared to Jacob in this special form of the verb because it is picturing the appearing of the Lord to Israel during the tribulation period. This picture is exact. When he does, they will mourn for him, exactly as the book of Zechariah says. I will pour on the house of David and on the house inhabitants of Jerusalem too, the spirit of grace and supplication in the future. This I shall do. Then they will look on me, yes, on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his son, his only, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Our second thought today. Now I have seen. This is verse 30. Verse 30 says, And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Another reason here for me to think that Maimonides was correct about Jacob being the one to fall on Joseph's neck. He's the first one to speak. In other words, after he had finished bawling his heart out and getting all the tears out of his head, he finally gathered himself enough to speak. And his words echo throughout history. In fact, what he says here is almost a parallel to what Simeon said when he held the baby Jesus in Luke chapter 15. So I want to read you this beautiful passage. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents <clears throat> brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed him and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before all the people's a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. It is a beautiful comparison between the two, but there is more than just two old men saying that they can now die. One amazing parallel is that Jacob is talking and looking at Joseph, who is known to Egypt as Zaphnath Paanea, the savior of the world. What he, is saying to him, what he says to him is, now I am ready to die. And this is literally what happened to Simeon when he said, for my eyes have seen your salvation. They're both claiming that they've seen the Savior of the world. Both Joseph and Jesus are a light to the Gentiles around them. And both Joseph and Jesus are the glory of their people, Israel. And both are God's mode of salvation for his people. It is certain that Simeon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spoke his words to reflect this ancient passage from Genesis as a remarkable parallel to the picture. But in addition to the parallel is the picture itself. The NIV translates this verse, now I am ready to die rather than now let me die. And this is certainly the intent of the words. Israel is not asking to die, nor is he saying that he wished that he would die. Rather, he's saying that he is now ready to die. And it is the hope on the lips of every true believer in Jesus Christ since he came. Or at least I hope it is the hope on your lips. Without Christ, nobody is truly ready to die. In Christ, we are set, we are ready, our bags are packed for the great journey, and we're just waiting for that heavenly train to come take us home. Jacob is going to live, in fact, 17 more years, but because of what has happened, anytime, whether a day, a week, a month, or many years, it no longer matters. 
And how blessed we are in Christ that the same is true with us. We have beheld the face of the Lord, and this really is not our home. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, I am ready to go. For my eyes have seen your salvation in wonderful release. I now have a heavenly hope. This I know. Jesus is our salvation, prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles as well. They will hail him under all church steeples, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Our third thought today, may you dwell in the land of Goshen. This is verses 31 through 34. Verse 31, then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. After his intimate reunion with his father, he directs his words to his brothers and all of the others. I will now go up and tell Pharaoh. In verse 29, it said that Joseph went up to Goshen. Now it says that he will go up to Pharaoh. And this has caused some people to get confused. Scholars have debated, how can he go up in both directions? But this is not a problem. Goshen is on the way to Canaan from where Joseph is. When one goes towards Israel or towards Jerusalem, they are always said to be going up. It is God's land and it is God's city. One always ascends towards them regardless of the elevation they're at. In the case of Joseph going up to Pharaoh, he is going up in legal elevation towards the royal throne. And so it is going up in a courtly sense. Now it's good to remember right now for us to go back and review that brothers picture the individual leaders of the tribes of Israel. Joseph pictures the Lord Jesus. Pharaoh, which means great house, pictures heaven, God in heaven, okay? Israel is going to be brought into the wilderness during the tribulation where they will be cared for and they will be nourished. That's explained in Revelation, all right? Joseph is going to Pharaoh to tell them that his family has arrived. It is picturing the Jews who have recognized Christ and are reunited with him. He will ensure that heaven itself tends to their needs. That is what we're seeing in this picture right here. Verse 32, and the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. Here the Hebrew literally says that they are keepers of the flock. As shepherds, they're responsible for the flocks under them. The picture is consistent with the brother's picture of the leaders of the tribes of Israel in the future. The feeding of the flocks is symbolically used all the way throughout scripture as tending to and caring for those who are under a spiritual head. One of many such verses is found in Isaiah chapter 40. It's speaking of the Lord caring for his people. These are beautiful words. I want to read them to you. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. These shepherd brothers of Joseph and their flocks then would be the people of Israel under their leaders in the book of Revelation. During the tribulation, they will be tended to and they will be cared for with Christ as their chief shepherd. And this is exactly what Peter speaks about in his first letter, which is addressed to Jewish believers. Here's what he says. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Verse 33, so it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? There was already at this time in Egyptian history, a strict caste system that was in place. People were categorized based on their given status, uh, according to their lineage and the work that they did. Joseph is preparing them for their meeting with Pharaoh, knowing that he is going to ask them their occupation. This caste system is only going to get worse in Egypt as the years go by, and so this is a very serious business. Joseph wanted them to be prepared in advance for this important meeting. Verse 34, that you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and our fathers also. The instructions include the words, your servants. They are subjecting themselves to the rule and the authority of Pharaoh. The connection to the New Testament is clear. 
They have claimed Jesus as their brother, and they have claimed devotion to God because of him. It is in this relationship that they are told to state that they are shepherds, and this is what they have been all of their lives. The reason for it is coming, and it is what will keep them alive and yet keep them separate from the Egyptians during the famine and throughout the next 215 years. And even this is a picture which is accurate of the leaders of Israel. They are by default shepherds of the people. They may not have been very good ones in the past, and even today they may not be very good, but they are shepherds. The Bible is filled with such references like this one right here from Jeremiah chapter 23, which speaks of the shepherds of Israel. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. A shepherd can only be effective if he proclaims Jesus Christ. But actually, he can be effective either way. He can be effective for evil or he can be effective for good. But if he is proclaiming Christ, he is going to be an effective for good shepherd. And this is why it is so absolutely important to have a proper shepherd or to be a proper shepherd is because souls really are at stake. And if you think of what I'm, the connection I'm making at right now is we got rabbis and synagogues all over the world right now that teach that Jesus is not the Christ. They expel people from their synagogues when they uh, say, I want to go check out Jesus, or maybe my son is a Christian and I'm going to go after him. And they're, they're shunned from their society. And this is the picture that we're seeing right now. And it's going to continue, but they're going to have a conversion eventually and they will become proper shepherds of the people during the tribulation period. This is what we're seeing. And God is showing all of it in advance so that we can perceive what's going on in the world. Verse 34 continues, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. There's several reasons here for selecting Goshen. The first is that the shepherds were a lower class than any others. They weren't shaven. They did what might be considered menial work and they were probably less educated. And this is the perception that many people, even today, have of farmers and of country folk, or maybe preachers with beards. The thought of being lower class also lends to the idea of people who are thieves and who are troublemakers, whether that's true or not. Another thing that would bother the Egyptians is that they sacrificed and they ate their animals, many of which were considered sacred by the Egyptians. And because of these biases against them, Joseph is hoping to keep them separated and isolated so that the Egyptian people wouldn't come after them in the years ahead as they prospered. And being the covenant people, this is something that they would surely do. Another reason that uh, he selected Goshen is because Goshen is on the way to Canaan. And if they needed to leave early or leave quickly, the flight would be very easy for them to get out of there. Also, Goshen is called the best of the land of Egypt, implying that it is an excellent area for pasturing flocks. And finally, the isolation from the Egyptians would be a two-way street. Not only would they be kept from the biases of the Egyptians, but they would also be kept from the corruption of the Egyptians' beliefs and practices as well. All in all, Goshen is the perfect spot for them to dwell. God surely had everything in advance of their arrival so that they would be taken care of and that there would be no way of them losing their identity as a people during this 215 years before he brings them out through that great delivery at the Exodus. Everything is exactly as God determines. Verse 34 finishes up with these words, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Some scholars believe that those words right there were not actually spoken by Joseph, but they were rather inserted when uh, Moses was given the Torah as an explanation of the state of Egypt at the time of Joseph. Whichever is true, the words are corroborated by the famed historian who was a guy named Herodotus. He said that the shepherds were a part of a caste system known as the swine herds. It's one of the seven castes of the Egyptians, which they were divided into. They were held in such low esteem that they weren't allowed to enter into a temple. They also could not contract marriage with any others of their countrymen. They had to marry within their own people. They were so disliked also that existing monuments, even to this day from the times of the pharaohs, frequently represent these shepherds as lame, deformed, dirty, unshaven, and sometimes they even have a stupidly ludicrous appearance. It's funny. 
if you think about it, how the shepherd is considered so lowly and so abominable to the people of the Bible, be it the Egyptians here or even the Jews at Jesus' time. And yet it is considered the most noble of all jobs in the Bible at the same time. Both Testaments use shepherds as the epitome of character, and both Testaments ascribe the job spiritually to the Lord. The sons of Israel, Moses, and David were all shepherds, and the Lord is called the Good Shepherd both in the 23rd Psalm and in the Gospel of John. And that ought to lead you in your own life, because I know we got some people in here that have just kind of menial jobs. I have a menial job I do every day of my life when I'm not here at church, you know, just to help pay the bills. And you think, what does God look on in the person? Is he going to look on you because you have a lot of money? Does that matter? Is he going to look on you because you have a real important job? Is that what God is favoring? Or is he going to look on you because your heart is right with him, regardless of what job you had? I got to tell you what, I was in wastewater treatment for about 20 years, and you can't get much lower than that. I mean, it was a good job. It, the pay was all right, but it's the end of the line. I got to tell you what. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that people grow up saying, I'm going to be a wastewater treatment plant operator. But you can serve the Lord doing that. And I know faithful Christians that do in that job even today. Whatever the job is, who cares what the rest of the world thinks? Whether it's a good paying job, whether it's not, whether it seems important or whether it's just menial and degrading, it is our obligation to do it to the best of our ability and so honor the Lord. Paul explains that to us directly in Colossians chapter 3. He says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. That doesn't mean somebody has to watch you either. You know, part of my job that I do every morning is to clean the bathrooms at a strip mall. And I got to tell you what, it's a tourist season right now. And if you can get any idea of what it looks like in there, you, you can't even imagine. Whatever idea you have is a hundredth of what actually occurs. And I take care of it every single day. And that's because I serve the Lord. I don't complain about it. I just do it. I complain about it to myself. I mumble a lot. But you know what? I'm not here to, to bring dishonor on the Lord. I just do my job. I take out the garbage from four different garbage cans and I separate all of the recycles. And people come up and they'll talk to you and they kind of look at you like you're kind of dirty, you know, and they're just having this banter with you. And then they'll say, you know, how long have you done this? And I'll say, I've done it for about 20 years. And they say, do you do anything else? And I say, oh yeah, I'm a preacher. And all of a sudden the, the entire conversation changes. They're like, what? I say, yeah, I got a little church that I preach at over in Gulfgate. And, uh, they, 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 they can't believe it. this guy's out taking the garbage out and separating everything. Do it heartily to the Lord. If you do that, then the Lord is going to please with you, be pleased with you no matter what you do, no matter what your job is. As far as what this verse here, though, is picturing, if the shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians and they, along with their flocks, are picturing Israel during the tribulation, then this picture is very clear. Those faithful Jews of the tribulation period will be considered an abomination to the rest of the world. And this is exactly what is expected in the future. It should not be missed, and I want you to make this connection, that Herodotus says that the Egyptians called shepherds the swine class of people. And this is what, whether you like it or not, what Muslims call Jews to this day. The Quran actually makes a reference to it, saying that they are the descendants of pigs and apes. And if you read what the leaders of these Muslim nations say about the Jews, they quote that verse from the Quran. Oh, they're pigs and uh, the Palestinians say we're going to drink the blood of those pigs and we're going to destroy them. So nothing has changed in these 4,000 years since this was written that the people in the tribulation period that God is protecting are going to be considered the lowest abomination of all. The whole world is going to come against Israel and they will almost be annihilated before Christ returns to defend them. But he will come to defend them. This is the great thing about redemptive history. God makes promises and God keeps those promises. And he does it in a way in which the underdog is cared for and protected. On a more personal level, though, this is how God regularly works with man. Paul, writing to the believers in Corinth, told them about how God favors the underdog. There, in his first letter, he writes these words to you and to me. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many are wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which were mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not 
to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But if him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God in righteousness and sanctification and redemption, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Whether it's ancient Israel being brought into a foreign land to be safely kept and carried along, or them some years later being brought out and defended at the Exodus, God is there to protect the little guy. In fact, he told them this explicitly in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Again, many years later, Israel was consigned to be destroyed by the wicked Haman during the time of the Persian, Persian Empire. If you know that story, it's the book of uh, Esther. But God turned his curse into a blessing upon the people. Then he's done it again for them in modern times. He's planted them right back in the land, just as the Bible said would happen. He is the defender of the widow. He is the God who cares for the orphans. He hears the cries of the oppressed and he upholds the weak and broken. So when you see disaster all around you in the world, and when it seems like things are out of control and falling apart, don't let these things worry you. Because of Jesus, we are included in the new covenant, which is a covenant which is sealed in his own blood. It is a promise and it is a guarantee from the everlasting God that we belong to him and that nothing can ever separate us from him. Israel is headed right into the future in a foreign land and we are heading into the future in a land which is not our home. But God brought Israel out and planted them again in the, their own land and God has guaranteed that because of Jesus Christ we will be planted for all eternity in the new heavens and in the new earth. This is our great hope, and so let's hold on to that assurance as our lives go by. He is a great God, and he is a magnificent redeemer. He is Jesus. So if you've never had that moment in your life where you can absolutely say with certainty that you belong to him, once again, I am going to ask you for a minute to just explain to you how that can happen. And I'm going to explain to you why it needs to happen just in case you've never mentally made this connection. The Bible says that all have sinned. There is nobody that hasn't sinned. All have sinned. And the Bible goes on to tell us that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin in us. There are two types of death alluded to in the Bible. The first is spiritual death. That happened at the moment that Adam disobeyed God, and that is inherited. We are born spiritually dead, and we are separate from God. And then we have the effects of sin on our life, which wear us out until finally we go into the grave. If we do not fix the spiritual death before the physical death comes, we will be spiritually dead for all eternity. And so God gave us his son as a satisfaction of, against our sins. He went to the cross and he paid the sin debt that we cannot pay. And so the Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You must call on Jesus as Lord. You have to ask him into your heart and to forgive you of your sins and for that personal relationship to come about. But once it does, it is for all eternity. You can never lose it. You have moved from dead Adam to live Christ. All right? It's the gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. Just accept it as a gift. Don't boast about it later. Go out and tell somebody about the greatness of Jesus Christ, okay? Our closing verse today comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may be, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. All right. Next week, we're going to go over Genesis 47, verses 1 through 6. This will be called Grace in the Land of Goshen. Go ahead, read those six verses. Make sure you know them for the sermon. Get out your Hebrew Bible. Study all the Hebrew words. Be ready. And uh, that'll be our 116th Genesis sermon, okay? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So I would ask you to call on him. And he will do marvelous things for you and he will do marvelous things through you if you simply call on him, all right? 
Our poem today is called, He Appears to Israel. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph at his command to point out before him the way to Goshen, and they eventually came to Goshen the land. So Joseph made ready his chariot, as the Bible does tell, and went up to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. And he presented himself to him with a smile, and he fell on his neck and wept. On his neck there for a good while, surely also his beating heart leapt. And Israel said to Joseph at that place, Now let me die if it is God's will, since I have now seen your face. Yes, because you are alive still. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household too, I will go up and tell Pharaoh my druthers. This is the thing I will now do. And say to him, my brothers, and also those of my father's house as well, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me in Egypt to dwell. And the men are shepherds as they were taught, for feeding livestock has been their occupation. And their flocks they have also brought, their herds and all that they have for the famine's duration. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say the following, This shall be your affirmation. Livestock has been your servant's occupation. From our youth even till now we say, Both we and our fathers, this our vocation, we continue at it to this very day. That you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd to the Egyptians is an abomination. All of the pains of Jacob's broken heart, those many sad and anguished tears, they were really only a temporary part of God's plans which unveiled through the years. In the end, there was a joyous reunion as Joseph appeared to Jacob in flesh and blood. The beauty of the moment, the intimate communion, was more than any blossoming bud. We in our hearts await a reunion as well with loved ones in Christ since departed from us, but we shall see them again as the Bible does tell. This hope is sure because of the victory of Jesus. And with them together we shall see his face and sing the song of his marvelous redemption and grace. All hail King, our King, yes, our glorious Lord Jesus, who has done such wondrous things for us. Hallelujah and amen. Okay, we get the instructions for, for the Lord's Supper from the uh, book of 1 Corinthians. It's the 11th chapter. And there Paul wrote these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given a blessing over it. This is the words that he would have said. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said these words. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So let's take a moment and just talk to the Lord about our week behind us and uh, our intention to uh, serve him a little better in the week ahead.
the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Done with the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of Paul. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to meet here. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how faithful you were to the people of Israel in the past, and how you've been faithful to them all through their years of disobedience and exile. You have preserved them as a people. You've brought them back into the land, and they're ready for their final time of trial before you come and present yourself to them and lord you've done the same with us individually each one of us has been separate from you mm. we were out there in the wilderness and we were out there in exile and you came looking for us and you presented yourself to us and you called us by your spirit and here we are thanking you for that moment in our each of our lives and we would ask that you would do the same for many in the world in the week ahead Call many in our families and our friends and uh, those that are our associates and just let them know that you are the God who is willing to accept us just as we are to forgive us of our sins and to lead us to eternal life through the shed blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we do so in his name. Amen. <laughs>